Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 121. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore on Twitter, filling in for our normal co-host, John White, at BeJourneyman. We are pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey to virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip. What do you think a storyteller is, listeners? Would that be a gifted speaker or orator who can tell me a great story? Is that someone who can host story time at the bookstore? Is that someone who has recently been on VH1 Storytellers or was on it at one time? Well, Brianna Blasse is our guest this week, and she's going to set the record straight on what it's like to be a storyteller, and she happens to be a writer. You'll find that her parents were actually highly technical people. Brianna chose a technical field, but a less technical focus than her parents. And that's not a bad thing. You'll get to hear the story about a really cool experience that changed Brianna's trajectory and really helped shape what she's become today. If anybody out there has been thinking about writing a book, this is the episode for you. What does it really take to be a writer who writes a successful book? How do you get started? Brianna has been there and she's going to share her wisdom with us. So let's get started with our interview with Brianna Blasse, part one. Brianna Blasse, thank you so much for joining us on the Nerd Journey today. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. You bet. Let's start by learning a little bit about who you are and what you do today. Sure. So um, what I do today is I work at VMware, and my title is Innovation Storyteller, which, yes, don't be jealous. It is the best title in the entire company. It's true. (laughs) Yeah, they wouldn't let me change mine. (laughs) you got to earn your way into that, buddy. (laughs) True, true. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about what you do as a storyteller as part of that overarching role, because I, that was a new one to me. I had not heard that title before. And I think maybe others would be curious. It's interesting because that title has become very chic in the last couple of years. And Depending on where you are, it can mean many, many things. Like it might just mean that you're a writer, um, but there's other kinds of storytelling within that too. You could be doing video stories. There's all kinds of media that you use. But the reason that it's become chic is that um, there's a big difference between writing, say, a data sheet and telling a story. I might get the same information across to you, but stories are different. Stories involve people. They have protagonists. They have emotion. They have motion. So what people are learning is that stories move people. 
And so now storytelling has become very, very chic. But different storytellers do different things. In my job, I tell the stories of innovation within the office of the CTO at VMware. Definitely a lot of innovation happening there and lots of stories to be shared for sure. Absolutely. Now, I imagine you probably didn't come out of the womb as a storyteller. So let's maybe back up just a little bit and talk about how you made it to here. Let's walk let's walk down that career journey and, and talk about some of the inflection points along the way, like what made you want to be a storyteller and what, well, well, the reason I would say that I wanted to be a storyteller is because I love stories. I was one of those kids that started reading super, super early and um, being kind of a nerd myself. Um, I used to immerse myself in books and that's where I felt safe and where my imagination wandered and um I always tell people this, and it sounds so egotistical, and I don't mean it this way, but being a writer, it sometimes is less of a choice. Sometimes being a writer chooses you, and I feel that way because I don't think I ever wanted to be anything else. Like, I never wanted to be an astronaut or, like, a politician, so, but... I didn't really think that that was something I could do as a career because of the family that I come from. They're physicists, both my parents. I went to college at UC Santa Cruz, and I chose to study environmental studies because that's how I was tricking my parents into thinking I was studying science. Um, but really, it was a lot more about like the politics of the environment and the environment like as in the sense of nature. And in my senior year, I took a class from a professor named Paige Stegner, who's actually quite famous. He is the son of Wallace Stegner, who was a nature writer who worked with the photographer Ansel Adams. So now Paige Stegner is a very, very famous environmental writer, but he wrote about the beauty of nature, not like writing about water politics, although I did that later. So to be in Paige Stegner's class, you had to be able to take a 10-day trip, a river rafting trip, down the San Juan River in Arizona, which is a tributary of the Colorado River, and um, 10 days. So like you had to be able to get away from everything and take time off of all your other classes and do this incredible trip. So the reason that he did that was because he wanted his students to truly immerse themselves in nature and to get away from all of the other distractions. And only there, he thought, could you really learn to be a good environmental writer, like a magazine journalist, environmental journalist. So I went on this trip. And let me tell you, there is a very big difference between reading about something like the Grand Canyon, the grandeur of the Grand Canyon, and then floating on a raft through a canyon where all you can see is a little sliver of blue sky at the top, being surrounded by towering red cliffs with absolutely nothing else except cliffs and sky and the people that you're with. Um, it kind of changes everything. And it was at that moment where I started to understand the value and the beauty and the 
I'll say import because to me it means a lot of being a writer, that kind of writer, not necessarily a story writer, like a creative writer, but telling stories about the world. So I graduated, fortunately, somehow. Let me pause on that before you go on. That sounds a lot like what Pixar does when they make their movies. They send people out on site to do all this research, like Finding Nemo. They researched different fish and sharks and ocean oceanography things, and they immerse their people in all of these different places and experiences, that experiential learning, so that they could come back and create the the movies and so that it would be as realistically lifelike, I guess you would say, as possible, but in in digital form. That's what it reminded me of. Very cool. Well, I know that Paige Stegner was around before Pixar, but maybe this idea isn't that original. (laughs) It's a good one. Experiential learning at its best. Right? I mean, and that's where stories come from. Stories are emotional. They have people in it. They, you know, it's like, how how can you write a story until you let yourself feel those emotions and understand and see those images? That is what separates writing from a story in my mind anyway. And so the professor required that you go on the trip to be in the class at all, right? That's right. So sort of a test of dedication too. Exactly. I mean, it was very much like one of those, like, you got to be in the club sort of things, you know. Um, But it was there that I was like, okay, hold up, there's something here. And it's something special. And it's not what my parents thought being a writer is. And not only that, but I can do this because Paige Stagner touched something in me. And I was changed forever, exactly what he hoped. And in fact, a few years ago, I saw him on a PBS special and I was like, I wonder if that dude's still alive. And I looked him up. I found his daughter on the internet and I was like, listen, if your dad's still around, can you just tell him he changed my life? And he sent me an email back and he's like, I remember you and your friends. And then he remembered the whole class. And I just said, I just want you to know, like, that river rafting trip trip changed everything for me forever. And that's a true true story. Well, there's something to be said for the mentors we meet along the way and the experiences that maybe they sort of push us through that we might not have chosen ourselves if left to our own devices. Yeah, it turns out that guy knew a few things. (laughs) It sounds like it. Yeah. After that, I somehow scored a job. I do not know why this editor hired me, but before I even graduated, somehow I talked my way into a job writing about water politics in the area where I live now for this weekly, like, nowhere land paper. Now, so the environmental studies degree, right? And I had a minor in writing, so I went and did this newspaper reporting, and I was broke, I couldn't even rent an apartment because being a general reporter is is poor. I made $5.50 an hour and I had to live with my mama. So that was when I decided to go to grad school. And I was fortunate enough to go to NYU in a very um, like a tiny little science and technology journalism program. And that's where my story really begins. Now, science and technology, was it because that's what your parents wanted or that was the best option at the time? Well, 
I learned that being a general reporter pays $5.50 an hour. I had actually taken a science writing class also that same year of school and started to just see that st- like science is not what my parents thought it was. Like science is not all, you know, looking through a microscope and it's not solving chemistry, um, equa- balancing equations, all those things that are so hard. So you didn't get your white coat? Is that what you're saying? I'm really not very good at science. That's the irony. I'm great at high level concepts, but I, I know very, I, I don't go deep on anything. But the truth is, if you, did you ever read that book by Oliver Sacks called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat? I've heard of it, but I did not read it. It's a perfect example. It's a book about medicine, but it's curious stories of medicine. Like when you talk about medicine, those are stories of people. The stories of diseases, that was that movie, Patch Adams. Stories of diseases are stories of human suffering. And the scientists who, you know, cure diseases, those are very human stories. So there's a lot of stories in science, and they're remarkably deep and full of protagonists and villains, not always human. But yeah, so science That's has cool. a lot of cool stories, really, yeah. a lot. So what kinds of things did you write about as part of that journalism program? Everything you could imagine. It was brutal. So brutal. So we had to study graduate level physics, chemistry, astrophysics, um, all these different graduate level, you know, genetics. Um, Yeah. And if you didn't get B's, you failed. It was really, really hard. I had to work hard. hate that. So, but we wrote stories about, like, we might write a news story about something that was happening in the news. Genetic sequencing was new when I was in grad school because I am 108 years old. So we wrote about, like, new discoveries in genetic sequencing. What did that mean? What, you know, what did it mean to start decoding the human genome? And it might have been a newspaper style or it might have been, you know, magazine style, which is very, very different. And that was part of the exercise. Natalie Angier was one of my professors. She was a medical reporter at the New York Times. Incidentally, one of the most famous reporters right now that's been writing about COVID for the New York Times, she's a graduate of um, at that same program at NYU, Apoorva oh, wow. Mendevilli. You'll see if you look for that name, she's on like every New York Times story about COVID. Think about that. The stories of COVID, that's not something like in a textbook. These are stories of real people. And the people who solve those problems are heroes. Those are real protagonists, real life. So it's very human science. There's a lot of deep, dramatic stories. Wow, that's that's fantastic. Once you get that type of education and you, you know, it sounds like you started with the journalism, went into reporting, narrowed it a bit more. So you're becoming a little bit more specialized. And I know a lot of people out there are, they have this fear of, going into a specialty because it pigeonholes you or the feeling that it pigeonholes you and keeps you from becoming a generalist. Did that happen to you? No, because I went the other way around. When I worked at the at the newspaper, um, I had to report on everything and I hated it. Like they tried to send me out to like crime scenes and I'm like, I'm not going because <laughs> I was afraid of everything. <laughs> 
I'm like, I'm not going down there. There's a shooter. <laughs> so, I mean, there's another thing I, I, I learned that when you're a generalist, you're competing with way more people. And if you want to grow up and be a writer, like you have some options. You can be very, very poor. You can have three jobs or you can pick a specialty that is profitable. And when you pick science and technology, you've just narrowed your competition a whole, whole lot. So it turns out my parents had some wisdom when they were trying to force me to study science because my competition is a far smaller group. Like, imagine if you want to be an entertainment reporter. Okay, like, who yeah, doesn't? That's a tough one. Absolutely. But if you want to write about VMware virtualization technology, and you want to write about it, you want to tell stories about it, not write documentation or data sheets, suddenly the, the pool of people you're competing with has just narrowed a lot. And incidentally, the pay goes up too. That's a cool little benefit. I just want to say that if you're listening, I do find writing documentation fun. Maybe that's just me. He's lying to you, people. I can see it on his face. <laughs> I actually do think it's fun. No, that's that's good. There's there's a place in the world for everyone. <laughs> that's why we have technical writers and yes, technical and all writers, different companies. Yeah, and you can make good money being a tech writer too. A lot of good money. It could be the most exciting thing for that person's day. Of course, it is. I know people who are passionate about it. It's yeah, true for sure. If you don't mind me asking, once you went down the science and technology path. Were there challenges because you're a woman in that field? I know that that's been a, a theme with some of our other our other ladies in tech that we've had on. So I just wanted to ask that question and see if you had any perspectives there. You know, no one's asked me that question before. And it's it's very interesting. My mother is a PhD physicist, and she got her PhD, like, in the 60s. So... From the moment I was born, my parents were telling me that, like, I could be anything I wanted. I could be an astronaut. I could be the first female. Like, I never really saw those kind of, um, those kind of barriers. But what I did find a lot of was sexual harassment in the workplace. And I'm very grateful to the Me Too movement and the times we live in because, Hopefully women now just will not encounter those kind of things. But yeah, things were different then, definitely, when I first started. So no one ever said, I mean, maybe I didn't get some jobs because I was a woman. I don't know. But I found a pathway. And the cool thing about being a writer is that um, no one really cares who you are. They just care if you can write. So once you can get those first few clips, which are difficult to get, when you get those first few articles published or you write your first book, whatever it is, you run around showing that off. And I mean, these days, they don't even necessarily know if you're male or female, you know, depending on the situation. So I would say I probably didn't get promoted as fast as a lot of the men around me. That was one thing I definitely think, especially in the beginning of my career. But being a woman was harder for other reasons, just because being in a newsroom can be a very tough environment, too. Because I wrote medical news for a while for a medical newswire that went out over the New York Times newswire, and I worked on Park Avenue. 
And man, that was brutal, let me tell you. Um, and, and there was definitely challenges being a woman there. I got called names that people only call women, things like that, because it's a lot of pressure. Like imagine this, you come to work at eight o'clock in the morning, you have two story assignments on your desk. One is due at 10 o'clock, the other one is due at noon. Both of them require original quotes. They're probably medical studies that you have to explain, and you need quotes from a doctor or the original researcher, someone like that. The medical newswire goes out at 1 o'clock, okay? When the newswire goes, it's over, baby. It doesn't matter how good your story is. It's not making it out that day. So, like, it gets to be tremendously high pressure, and, um, yeah, so I remember a lot of name calling and people, it was, I cried at work. That was one thing. I cried at work like every day when I was, when I worked with the newswire. <laughs> that sounds, that sounds really challenging. If, if I'm someone who likes to write and, and I know that you can't necessarily always have control over what you write unless you just write books all the time <laughs> and make a lot of money off that, but someone is telling you the category of content they need and giving you a really tight deadline. So if it's not something you're super into as a, you know, I find this really interesting, how challenging does it make it to complete that assignment, much less under the time pressure? Yeah, it's challenging. But the truth is, if you want to be a writer, that's 80% of your career is writing about stuff you don't really want to write about under very tight deadline pressure. It might be subject matter area that you enjoy, but like, I really wanted to write for American Health Magazine, which I don't think they still exist, but it was like a supermarket health magazine, right? And um, I had to take a lot of really crappy assignments before they gave me a big assignment. So you'd find yourself writing things that, like, I thought were really, really trivial. You know, I wanted to write big cover stories. Well, I had to write at least, like, ten really crappy stories before they trusted me enough to write a big feature story and make it onto the cover. So, like, you got to pay your dues, unfortunately. And, you know, I always say this. If you say you've got writer's block, like writer's block is only, that's the luxury of the non-writer. There ain't no writer's block when you're a paid writer. It's like, dude, it's due, okay? So get it done because that's not an option, you know? It's not glamorous. Being a writer is like the least glamorous job. I get so mad when you hear people talking about writing books like movie stars. I'm writing a book about my life. When really what they're doing is going to a coffee shop and dictating their life story to some working stiff like me who then goes and labors over it for no money and they get all the notoriety and then on the very back page it's like contributions by Brianna Blessing, you know? It's not a glamorous job. Although now mine's really cool. You gotta work for a long time. Hang with it. Wait till everyone else goes off and does something else and then you get a cool job like I have now. Well, that's that's interesting because I think there are a lot of people, at least in the tech industry that I've spoken with, who have written books, right? In whatever format, whether it's completely digital, paperback, they've decided that a way that they can stand out is to write a book. So in your mind, what's the motivation between wanting to write a book or the motivation behind wanting to write a book and maybe some of the inside baseball about what it really takes? 
Yeah, that's a great question. <clears throat> writing books is hard. Like, I question everyone who wants to write a book. That first of all, you have to have a long attention span, and I am not necessarily that person. My husband is a fiction writer, and he loves writing novels. I'm the kind of person where, like, after chapter one, I'm bored and want to move on to something else. I have the attention span of a gnat. So writing books is hard because they're long, slow slogs. And I have written a few books. Um, they're not books that I pitched, but like I said, if you want to make money as a writer, you got to write. People came to me and said, oh, I saw your stories in American Health. Can you write this book for me? Really, the inside baseball is you want the least glamorous job. And here we're not talking about fiction, right? I'm talking about, you know, if it's science or technology, you, you, you've you got to really think hard about it because it takes a year unless you have nothing else to do. And if it only takes you a year, you're a fast writer. The inside baseball is that absolutely everything you write, whether it's 500 words or it's 50,000 words, it's all made up of components. Everything has, you can, you can deconstruct it. Even a newspaper article, it might look to the lay person like it's just one long story, but really newspaper stories are composed of a lead, a billboard, like there's all these different pieces and they actually have names. So if you want to write a book, the best thing to do, and that's after the other parts of like pitching it to a publisher, which is a whole different story, is you got to write a list of chapters break your book down into tiny, tiny pieces, because otherwise it's impossible. Like you can't sit down and just write a missive with no structure. You can, but you probably will end up with something that's crappy and then have to start over and rewrite it. You know, you might have a lot of great raw material, but it will not make sense. So the books that I have written, that's where you start is with the table of contents. And and a summary. And I will say this and come at me if I'm wrong, writers out there. If you cannot concisely explain what your book is about in one paragraph, you don't have your idea fleshed out. If you cannot write me a list of the chapters, you haven't thought it through enough. It literally is that it must be that crystal clear in your mind. You might take journeys, you might find sidebars, you may add a new chapter. But if I can't tell you what I'm writing about, it's not developed enough to get started. And is the one paragraph similar to the what you would call the pitch, almost like a conference talk abstract? Is that what the pitch is is made up of? That's a great Th That's question. what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Abstracts are a very good example of a type of pitch. You know, I want to give a talk on, um, I don't know, Kubernetes. So, but it's a particular aspect of it, how VMware can work with this or that. Yeah, you need to write an abstract. A pitch to a publisher is slightly different because that's a lot more like writing an ad. But yeah, you better be able to boil it down to abstract length. And you you basically have to enca encapsulate all the drama within there, right? You're going to tell a story. So it's like, you know, it still has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So you better know what that is before you start. Otherwise, you're in a world of hurt. You just are. Writing a book takes a long time. Yeah, it sounds like a tough way to go. It it kind of reminds me of reading George Lucas's biography earlier this year, and he talked about writing the 
quote-unquote treatments for Star Wars and how long it took them to go through and refine those. And that was really just a few pages on what the movie's going to be about. They hadn't even written the script yet. Right. You got to get people to fund it. And by the way, we haven't even talked about what happens after you write a book because you don't like write a book. You write a draft of a book. (laughs) And then you let a whole bunch of corporate people do horrible things to it and ask you for 20 more drafts and do all the go in a different direction. And yeah, it's an iterative process. If you make a pitch on a book you want to write, does the, I guess you do that to the publishers, right? Well, it depends on the type of book that you write. So like if you want to write fiction, that's a good different market. With fiction, you have to write it. You have to find an agent because publishers don't listen. They don't want to hear from writers. They want to hear from agents and they want to hear from agents they trust. So you have to start by pitching to an agent. And then once you've found an agent, then you need to work with your agent to refine a pitch and the agent gives your pitch to the publisher. That's really how that works. Um, with with nonfiction, it's slightly different, and it'll also depend on the publishing company and the type of book. Because there's a type of book that's called a work for hire book, where someone s- seeks you out, like which is the the books that I've written, and then there's you pitching to a publisher. Um, what's that? You you would know that publisher o- O'Neill, right? Who does all those? O'Reilly. O'Reilly, thank you, O'Reilly. That's probably slightly different. I doubt that they hear from agents. You could probably write a pitch to O'Reilly on a book, but you better be a subject matter expert. And that's the difference, right? You you can get a book gig because you're a good writer, or you can get a book gig because you're a subject matter expert. Most of the times, those two things are not in the same human. When they are, like, bravo to you. Hats off. Is that a right brain, left brain thing, you think? I don't know. I don't, I really, I mean, I guess it depends on what you're writing about, you know? I just think that, like, not everyone has a huge range of skill. Like, I promise you this, I could write a great book about writing a book. (laughs) You know, like, you write what you know. That was what I learned in, in journalism school, too. Write what you know. That's the best way to write. So, you know, if I try to write a book on Kubernetes... You can be sure it would fail. I would have to come to Kubernetes experts and run around and interview them and write down what they said and then read a bunch of books myself. Like it's not, you know, knowing something and writing about it. Um, you gotta, you gotta be, know what you're writing about. That goes with that whole table of contents idea. You gotta know what you're writing about because writing isn't about writing. Writing is about content. Writing is a user interface for ideas. Um, words are just an artifice that we humans use in order to convey information to each other, right? Just like pictures are a user interface. But if I want to tell you about writing like I am right now, the user interface to this story is words. So it's like writing isn't good enough. You need to be able to write about something and the the content is what people care about. You could be the best writer in the world, but if the story you're telling is a boring one, no one cares. It's both. It's content and then there's language and words. Wordsmithing is not writing. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, Yes, wordsmithing. There's a whole topic there. 
which yeah, we probably is. won't go into. But, uh, it's my favorite, though. Like, I would much rather have someone give me raw content and then let me just zhuzh it up and make it pretty. And that's a lot of what I do at work right now is I help subject matter experts tell their stories. It's so much easier than having to be a subject matter expert. <laughs> so how do you how do you know if you're someone who's written a piece of content? Maybe it's a blog post or um, an article how do you know if you're telling the right story? That's a great question. I mean, context is part of it, right? So let's say at work at VMware, I have people coming to me saying, I want to write a story for the blog about X, Y, and Z. Part of the question that I ask them to begin with is, who is the intended audience for this story? You know? So, like, you want to tell me a story about technology, cool. Is this a story about technology for other technologists? Is this something for your peers? Is it something that you want other engineers in your group to understand? Um, is it a story about technology for a broad audience? For example, I just helped someone in the machine learning group at work write a high-level overview of machine learning approaches. What is supervised learning? What is unsupervised learning? What is predictive modeling? And it was super, super high level. So imagine you're teaching a class, like a freshman class, and introducing them to machine learning. That is one audience. Then we've told other stories at VMware that are for people who are senior professionals in machine learning, and they're so narrow, um, it's a different audience. So context is everything. Um, and I think the best way to know is to ask. Ask a question. Do we need a story about X? Do competitive research. Is there already 5,000 stories about X? If so, maybe move on to something else. If your story's been told, unless you can tell a story in a way that it's never been told, make sure no one's written that story before. as children we have an idea of what we might like to do when we grow up. Brianna didn't think that being a writer could actually turn into a career for her, but it did. And it wasn't what her parents thought it was going to be initially. That experience in Paige Stegner's class really changed her life forever. She learned the difference between writing and storytelling, and that stories move people. They're immersive, and you have to feel the emotions and see the images to be able to really tell a good story and help your readers visualize the details of what you're trying to say so that they can be part of the story too. I know we're all thankful for the teachers in our lives, the mentors in our lives who have made an impact in the way that Paige Stigner made an impact on Brianna. You may have made impacts you don't even know about. Don't stop trying to make an impact for others. Are you someone who's a good writer? Are you a subject matter expert? Or are you a mixture of both? It may be that you have a book gig in your future, but it's not all glamorous, unfortunately. It takes clarity. Are you clear and organized about the content that will go into the book that you're writing? 
are you disciplined enough to get it accomplished, to not be able to claim you have writer's block, to push through, to develop the content you've committed to developing? In the field of writing, people don't care who you are. They care about whether you can write. Imagine if we considered a quality of content that people create more importantly than whether they're different from us. Not everyone does that. There are going to be people who discriminate against others wherever we go. We can fight it and we can be an ally to those who are being persecuted, absolutely. However, focusing on the quality of our work and letting it speak for itself, being mindful of the quality of the things you're creating is something that's going to help you no matter what. Just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at NerdJourney. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore, flying solo for now. For John White, at Journeyman. signing off.